morning, Full Life family. How are you guys doing this morning? Everybody good today? So glad you're in the room and you're, and you're worshiping with us. If you're here for the first time, we hope you felt right at home already. Worshiping, you have felt loved on a little bit. Can you do me one more favor? Can we welcome those who are watching us online? We just want to welcome them. So glad you're tuning in. We hope you've already felt the presence of God in the room today. So as you notice, uh, I'm not, I, my role is a little different today. And so uh, it's, it's fun kind of reaching back a little bit. It's been a long time since I led worship. And, you know, when you lead worship, you're a little rusty. So a couple things happen already. But you know what? We still, God's still worthy of our worship. Amen. And so uh, today we do have a special guest. But before I bring him up, I just want to remind you of, of about a couple things. We are starting at the movie series on the first Sunday of November. And we're asking you to go ahead and take these little cards. Somebody crumpled mine up. But uh, these little cards that are under the cross over there, if you'd write the names of eight people that you want to invite with you to, to church with you, preferably those who are far from God, and ask them to come sit next to you and let's, let's explore some, some modern-day parables together through the movies that we're going to be doing. And we just want you to pray over them. There's promises that you can pray over them on the back and pray that God would open their hearts to receive the gospel during the month of November. How many you believe for a harvest in November? Amen. And so I want you to do that. We'll do that together. And those are, like I said, right back there. And also we're doing our, uh, we're just encouraging you to do these prayer walks over our neighborhoods. We believe God for a harvest in our neighborhoods. We have these, these also these guides that are also in the back of the cross. And here's what we're believing, that if you, as you go in and bombard your neighborhood with prayer, God's going to tear down strongholds, and we're going to begin to see a harvest over our neighborhoods. Amen, everybody. So if you'll take those and do that, and maybe get people together, join together, and let's do these prayer walks together. So it's my it's my honor today to introduce you to, to Bruce Deal. Bruce Deal is, is what's your title? CEO of uh, City of Refuge in downtown Atlanta. And man, I'm telling you, you're, you're going to be blessed by his message today. I, I've met him a couple of times. Don't we hadn't really connected a whole lot over the last few years, but uh, I'm so glad he was willing to come and, and share with you the impact that he's having, not only in the city of Atlanta, but all over the country, rescuing uh, those in, called in sex trafficking, ministry to the homeless. He'll tell you more about that, but I'm telling you, the, the first service was so inspiring, and I, I'm just so, so looking forward to for you guys hearing what Bruce has to say, and I know you're going to be challenged with his message. Bruce, would you come up? Let's give him a good, a nice full life welcome. Amen. Thank you, my friend. So glad you're here. Hey, good morning. Or afternoon, whatever it is. I go to all these places, got 24 services every Sunday and I get to speak. Hey, it's great to be with you. If you're glad to be in the Father's house, say, I am. I am. I, uh, I'm glad to be here. It's an honor. Thank you, Pastor Lance, for the opportunity. I don't take it for granted when a pastor invites me to speak in their house. Anytime I'm in a worship service or any kind of environment and somebody's going to talk to me, I like to know a little something about them, so I give you quick little information. I grew up in the mountains of Virginia. My dad was a pastor, and uh, he grew up in the mountains of West Virginia, went to the military. When he came back, he went to this little church of God in Conklintown, West Virginia, where he accepted the Lord, uh, filled with the Spirit, called to preach, started ministry. So I grew up in that environment, and, and 65 years ago when he started ministry, everything basically was a sin. If you, Some of you older folks remember that, right? And so legalism and following the rules and regulations. And so 
I was 13, my brother was 12. I looked at him, I said, we're going to hell, ain't nothing we can do about it, bro. This is, this is way too hard to live up to. But uh, thankfully figured out God's grace along the way and uh, I accepted the call to preach when I was a uh, senior in high school, went to Lee University and graduated and went into traditional ministry. So for about 14 years, I was a youth pastor and associate pastor at a couple different churches. Ron and I, my wife, got married. Uh, she started giving birth to little girls. We have five daughters, Cassie, Kelsey, Kenzie, Kayla, and Carly. That's why I look like this. But anyway, um, five daughters that have now given us 11 grandchildren. Nine of those are boys, right? And uh, under the age of seven. So when we all get together, 11 grandchildren under seven, five daughters, their husbands, my wife. Um, my wife's been praying for my healing because I'm nearly deaf and I wear these hearing devices. She keeps praying for my healing, but I'm, I'm okay. Um, the, uh, because my hearing aids have Bluetooth and they're connected to my phone, and one of the best things is the mute option. Um, that's on my phone, so it's, uh, I'm good with that. So 14 years, traditional ministry, life was good. We were on a st- at a church uh, up by Spaghetti Junction north of Atlanta, been there five years. I was leading mission trips around the world, doing youth conferences, speaking on a regular basis, people coming to Jesus and getting to say, it was good, everything was fine. Wasn't unhappy, wasn't disconcerted, everything was fine. But I kept saying to Rhonda, is this all there is for us, right? If, I just need to know if this is it. Is, or, or, am I just supposed to be on staff, eventually be a lead pastor, you know, have our own church? Is that what we're supposed to do? But I just, I just had this nagging in my heart, and Rhonda just said, keep doing what you've been doing, what God tells you to do. If there's something else, he'll show you. I said, all right, babe. So about 26 and a half years ago, we got a call from the bishop. He said, hey, we got this little church downtown in the city of Atlanta. Uh, started in 1969. It grew. Now it's gone down. The pastor left six months ago. Nobody wants to go pastor, and I can't get anybody to go. There's only a couple dozen folks left. The building's in disrepair. They don't have any money. Would you go down for six months and close the church and sell the property? And so I thought, well, this might be interesting. You know, I get to speak every Sunday, get some more business acumen. So my pastor endorsed it. We went down. So I went down to close this little church, sell the property. So our fifth or sixth Sunday, this young lady walks in, looks pretty rough. At the end of the service, she walks down the aisle. She's weeping. She took me by the hands. And her words to me were, I've been hooking and stripping 14 years. Can you help me get out of the life? And we just said yes. We didn't know what that meant, but we said sure. And so we did some things for her that week and helped her. And she came back the next Sunday. She brought Bill with her. Bill was a 52-year-old alcoholic, said he hadn't been in church in 30 years and was one of her paying customers. And she said to him that week, I found something I think you need. Come go to church with me. And he did. And they sat on the second row right where this young lady sat right here. He sat on the aisle right there. And we started singing that little song, I need you more, more than yesterday, more than words can say. And about five minutes into the service, Bill fell out in the center aisle and started wailing and weeping and wouldn't stop. So I went down. Finally, I quieted the music. I went down. I said, can I help you? And he said, I think I need Jesus. And I said, well, we usually do that at the end of service, buddy. Right? I need to invite you. And he goes, no, I want him now. And I went, fine, take Jesus. All right. So, so, so Bill accepted Jesus. I came back the next Sunday. There are four more drug addicts and alcoholics. This next Sunday, there's 10 more. I walk in four months into what we thought was a six-month assignment. There are 100 drug addicts, alcoholics, homeless people have invited each other to church, and they're looking at us going, can you help us? I looked at Rhonda, and I drew on my deep theological training. I said, we've been conned by God, woman. This is wrong at every level, right? 
Again, I grew up in the mountains of Virginia. There's a great church in the mountains of Virginia that uh, about 500 people go to. I'm kin to 100 of them, right? Cousins, aunts, uncles. And so everybody knew I was going to go pastor that church for 30 years. So I was going to go there and, and, and preach and do weddings and funerals and kiss babies and hunt and fish and eat fried chicken, chocolate pie, watch Andy Griffith two hours a day. I knew what my pastoral ministry was going to be like. And God goes, how about hanging out in the hood the rest of your life? I'm like, oh, come on, man. But, you know, he sets you up sometimes. He'll ask you to do one thing knowing he's going to ask you to do something else, meaning he's going to ask you to do something else. He just asked us to go downtown for six months because he knew if he had said, hey, how about going down there for the rest of your life and here's what that's going to look like, I'd have just said no. I just wasn't that spiritual. I'd have asked for forgiveness and said no. So he just set us up. So we resigned our position and started pastoring that little church. And I started City of Refuge because I knew what we were going to do wasn't going to look like church, Right. And so we started City Refuge caring for people. And during that time, I found myself in my personal devotion in the book of Nehemiah. And in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse number 2, Nehemiah says, When my brother Hananiah and other friends from my hometown of Jerusalem came to visit, I inquired of them concerning the condition of my hometown. And Hananiah reported to me that the walls thereof had been burned with fire and the gates thereof had been destroyed and my friends and family had been taken captive. He said, my hometown was in destruction. The enemy had come in. Everything is torn down. My friends and family. And Nehemiah said, when I heard these words, I sat down. He was physically overcome. He said, I sat down and I wept and I fasted and I prayed for many days. And Rhonda and I just spent times ruminating in the word over and over and over. And going, you know, we didn't think Atlanta was going to be our long time assignment. But since it is, let's look and see what's going on. And we found out, as you already know, and we didn't have to go searching very far That the walls of our city have been burned with fire. The gates there have been destroyed. People, friends, and family have been taken captive to poverty and addiction and homelessness and domestic violence and trafficking. And and we're like, what are we going to do about this? Well, we wept and we fasted and we prayed. But you know, it's never enough to just weep and fast and pray. Right? We generally weep and fast and pray and ask God to send somebody else. But in chapter 2 in Nehemiah, Nehemiah goes before the king with the wine cup as he's done many times before. And the king looks at him and says, why is your face so downcast? I've never seen you look this way before. This is obviously a sickness of the heart, not of the flesh. And Nehemiah says, my hometown king, and he shares all the information with him. And the king says, well, what would you have me do? Now, if I'd have been Nehemiah, I'd ask the king to send some block masons over and rebuild the walls. And send some iron workers over and rehang the gates and send some soldiers over and set my friends and family free. But that's not what Nehemiah said, is it? Nehemiah said, if it pleased the king, send me. Now, Nehemiah wasn't qualified. He lived in the king's quarters. He wore clothes provided by the king. He ate food at the table provided by the king. But he's going over now to rebuild walls and rehang gates and take his friends and family back from captivity because he is called to do so and because they are people that he loves and he cares about. And so Ron and I decided to do that, so we started leading this ministry and taking in people and caring for people and all kind of stuff. And then Rhonda calls me one morning a couple months in out of her quiet time, and she's weeping. And she said, babe, if we're really going to impact the city, we've got to live in the city. If we want people in crisis to trust us, we have to live among them and show them we trust them. And I'm like, I hate when you and the Holy Spirit get together and start making plans for my life. Right? Uh, I, I say often God speaks and my wife's lips move, right? So, 
So I'm like, all right, woman. So we looked around. We couldn't afford the houses we wanted to live in, the neighborhood we could afford in. We didn't think we should live in with our five, four little girls at the time. So we ended up moving in the third floor of this old 65-year-old church building in the hood, right? So we move in this 65-year-old church building in the third floor. First night we lived there, an addict tried to steal our vehicle, but he was so high, he hot-wired the windshield wiper motor. So I came out the next day, the car still there. I said, well, this is going to be a hoot right here, woman, right? We did baptism a couple months in, so our baptism will pull back here like this, and you had to crawl under the stage to turn on the water. So I climbed under the, crawled under the stage. There's a homeless guy living under the stage in the sanctuary. Full bed roll, hot plate, radio, the whole deal. And I'm like, scoot over, buddy. i got to turn on the water. So it was something we'd never been a part of before. Our fifth daughter was born while we lived there. We lived there for six years. I got all the stories you want. We're broken into 34 times, three vehicles stolen, guns, knives, fist fights. I've been in Superior Court with guys that tried to kill me, and it was just more fun we'd ever had in church before. We weren't having any membership meetings about the color of the carpet or the music's too loud or contemporary versus traditional. We're like, you didn't get shot, I didn't get shot. Hallelujah to the Lamb, right? Our offering bucket over the years is funny. We, we cause all these people in crisis, so we don't make a big deal, but giving big deal out of it. Got a couple guys in the back, <coughs> excuse me, with a bucket. Our offering bucket over the years has had loaded guns, heroin rigs, crack pipes, bags of weed, and tasers. Right? I tell other pastors if you can't be arrested for your offering bucket, I'm not sure you're doing kingdom work. That's just my, that's just my opinion. So, <laughs> So Ron and I started taking in these little girls because their moms were going to jail or to rehab. We had our five little girls. So mom would go to jail or rehab. When she would get out, she didn't have anywhere to go, so she would move in. So I woke up one morning and started counting between my wife, our five daughters, the single moms and their daughters. I was living with 23 women. And I I came to a revelation that morning that this is not going to be good for my long-term mental health. All right? This little building, so I called up a real estate buddy. I said, go over in the bluff and find me a building. So the bluff, some of you know where the bluff is, 30314 in Atlanta. So the bluff is still the heroin distribution capital of the southeast United States. More heroin in and out of our neighborhood than any neighborhood in the country in the southeast. Highest crime rate per capita in the state of Georgia. Highest homeless population. Highest number of HIV positive cases. More men and women in jail for my zip code than any zip code in the state. 70, 60% of all the murders that occur in metro Atlanta, 7 million population, 13 counties occur in my neighborhood. I said, that's where we need to be. That's the most desperate community, so let's go. So my real estate buddy came back. He said, hey, I found eight acres of land, five acres under roof, an eight-foot fence with razor wire and an armed guard at the gate. And I said, well, our dreams have come true. Go see how much they want for that. So he came back and he said, the owner said he'll take a million six hundred thousand dollars. And my counteroffer was, well, we don't have any money. And, uh, and he turned me down for six months. And six months later, the owner donated it to us. Eight acres of land in the worst neighborhood in the state of Georgia. So we moved on to that campus with the idea of creating what we call a one-stop shop for those in crisis. Again, when Nehemiah went back to his hometown, he recruited people, family members, family units all throughout the city to take on one of the ten gates and repair it. He didn't try to do everything by himself, right? And so he takes these families to do it, and we said, let's recruit the best in class in a bunch of different areas, and let's have a one-stop shop for people in crisis. And so this morning, for example, on our campus, 20 years later since we got that campus, 
We have units now, 40 homeless mothers with 82 children woke up on our campus this morning, not in dormitories, but in individual living spaces where a mom and her children can live 6 to 12 months to receive all the services that they need. Man. So they live there 6 to 12 months, medical, mental health, dental, vision, parenting classes, financial literacy, vocational training, vocational placement. They walked across the parking lot to a commercial kitchen where we do about 300,000 meals a year, seven meals, seven days a week, three meals every day of the year. They were fed a great nutritious meal. They came back. They were in worship at 10 o'clock this morning on our campus where our church meets on a regular basis. Tomorrow morning when they wake up, the kids that are between six weeks of age and five years of age will walk just down the hallway to our free preschool for kids that live on our campus and from our communities. Those that are school age will walk a little further down the hallway into our private Christian school where they get loved on and cared for year-round. Go down the hallway a little further, they're running to our medical clinic, medic, medical mental health, dental and vision, nine full-time medical staff, 750 patient visits a month. They can go across the, hall, across the parking lot to the vocational training program where we put 727 people into the workforce last year that were unemployed in auto technician, culinary arts, coding academy, cybersecurity, customer service, hospitality, armed security patrol, people that were unemployed or unemployed, getting a livable wage income with a support system around them to do that. We now have 10 locations around the country, five in Georgia, three in Virginia, we're in Chicago and Baltimore, and opening in, in Nashville and Charlotte over the next six months, all because 26 years ago, we said yes to one young lady who walked down the aisle and said, can you help me? Can you help me? Right? God never shows us the end result, right? He just invites us to a journey. And he invited Rhonda and me and my girls on this journey, and we said yes to the journey. And now it's taking on this incredible form and fashion that blows my mind on a daily basis. I can't quite figure it out, right? Again, I, I just didn't know what he had, but I was willing to take one step. And this morning, I didn't come by to tell you to, to move out of your home and move to the inner city and go on a mission field. I just, said, come, I just came by to say, will you ask God, is there one thing you could do today that you didn't do yesterday? Is there one word you could speak to somebody in crisis? Is there one place you could go? Is there one assignment you could say yes to? Is there one dollar you could give different? Is there one thing that you could do to help the kingdom of God grow and expand in a little bit different way than you've done in the past? God loves taking us out of our comfort zone and putting us in places of uncomfortableness so that he can expose himself the power and the strength that he has. All of us have been gifted with unique gifts and talents and abilities and attributes that he wants to use for his kingdom. He didn't give us those things just to keep for us and ours. It was to give away. And so we begin to understand this as we begin to care for thousands of people every year and begin to impact our community in dramatic ways and, and to see God do these miracles along the way. And, and, but when we got in this neighborhood, this worst neighborhood, and we started some things around anti-trafficking, I'll talk a little bit more about it in a minute, we started having more threats and, and more issues with people wanting to come on campus and harm me and my staff and threats on our life. And so we started to try to figure out how do we make sure we do ministry and stay alive at the same time and not have injuries take place. So I found myself in, in Psalm chapter 31. And in Psalm 31, the psalmist talks about basically every aspect of life. He talks 
about being on a mountain and in the valley, having success and having failure, uh, being able to overcome and being able to be overcome. He talks about feeling like God's his best friend and God has betrayed him. He talks about having favor with his friends on some days and other days they cross the street to the other side because they don't want to encounter him. He just he describes all of the highs and lows of life and then he gets to verse 24 and he gives us four things that I want you to think about this morning that are the four sort of hallmarks in my life that I've tried to live by for the last number of years as we do the kind of work we do. Just four simple statements. Number one, the psalmist says, be brave, right? If we're truly going to impact the world for Jesus Christ, we can't be afraid of the enemy. If we're truly going to impact the world for Jesus Christ, we can't cower back when all of hell comes against us. We need to go forth with the power and the strength of Almighty God. Right, we, we need to be willing to go to the dark places, willing to go to the difficult places, willing to go to the dangerous places. I'm not talking just about physically brave. I'm talking about spiritually brave. I'm talking about praying prayers that are brave prayers, right? Praying God's miracles, praying God's intervention, praying God's handiwork in ways that we never have where we start praying big, brave prayers and helping God to know that our heart is in tune with Him and we're ready to see some stuff happen. Listen, if you come and hang out in my neighborhood and volunteer there, it's important that you be brave physically, right? We tell people all the time when you leave the campus, don't go left, right? You got to go right to get to the interstate as fast as you can because if you go left, the next intersection is the highest volume of violent crimes in the city per capita in my neighborhood. So don't go left, go right, right? That, that's not even just being brave. Sometimes that's just having good sense, right? Now, I like when people show up on my campus that think they're brave and we have an opportunity to prove to them that they're not, right? So for years, I led this thing called the Unholy Land Tour. And so we'd have these groups of high school or college students come stay overnight on our campus, and, and they would do work on campus. And we'd load them up on an old school bus about 11 or 12 o'clock one night and give them a tour through the neighborhood. And I'd tell them stories of things that had happened, encounters I'd had here. Somebody was shot over here. I'd tell them these stories. But I always liked because all these teenage boys or these college-age boys would all act like they were all brave and bad, right? So they'd get on the bus, on the bus and they're all, hey, and so I'd get on like I was going to drive, and I go, hold on, I'll be back. And I go in my office, and I strap on my gun. I come back and get on the bus, and they go, hold on, a preacher got a gun, right? So they'd start to get a little bit timid. But then what I would do is I'd tell my buddies in the streets, right, criminal types and homeless, guys that aren't ready to get right yet, I'd tell them, I'm bringing a busload of spoiled suburbanite kids through the neighborhood after a while. How about helping me out a little bit? And it was the coolest thing, man. We'd pull up at a red light, and two or three of my guys would charge a bus, start banging on the side, trying to pull the door open, yelling, screaming. We had youth pastors getting saved on the bus. <laughs> we, we had people wetting themselves. My wife said, you got to stop. Somebody's going to have a heart attack and die, and you're going to get sued, right? But it, it's always fun to think people that think they're brave find out they're not. We've got to be brave. Second thing is we've got to be strong. Right? If we're going to be brave, we've got to be strong, right? You, you know the people that act like they're brave and, and they've got a lot to say, but they don't have much to back it up. Well, listen, if you and I are going to declare the word of the Lord, we ought to be able to walk out the word of the Lord. 
If we're going to pray big prayers, we ought to have the strength of Almighty God, the strength of Holy Spirit abiding in us so we can walk out what we have proclaimed. And there are times that we have to be physically strong in the kind of work we do. I understand that. But more importantly, we need to be mentally strong and spiritually strong and emotionally strong so that we can do the work He's called us to do. And sometimes your strength should just be wisdom, right? Sometimes you don't have to show everybody how strong you are. You just got to be wise in how you handle the situation. So we're living in a church, and it's 3 o'clock one morning. Somebody starts banging on the door. I go to the door, and the guy said, hey, I'm hungry. I need something to eat. I said, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. Come back at daylight. Five minutes later, he's banging on the door again. This happens three or four times. I get aggravated. I said, meet me in the back parking lot. So I just pull on a pair of shorts. I don't have my shirt, shoes, hair is flying. I go in the back parking lot. I'm aggravated. He's scaring my wife, my kids. I said, what do you want? He said, I need $3 to go get something to eat. And this is not my most sanctified moment of pastoral care, but I just said, let me tell you something, buddy. I'm going to count to three, and if I can still see you, we're going to roll around this parking lot. And he said, well, that's fine, but before we do, let me tell you why I was in jail for five years. He said, five years ago, I saw a man slap my mama, and I said, all right, buddy. And he said, the next day, when that man showed up at my mama's house and opened the closet to hang up his jacket, I commenced to stabbing him 17 times. And I said, well, let me tell you something. If you'll wait right there, I'm going to go get you $3. See, you just every now and then, you got to be strong in your mind, right? You just got to decide, I don't have to be strong right now. i got to be wise, right? So we got to be brave. we got to be strong. we got to walk out the things God called us to do. The third thing is we got to be faithful. You know, the psalmist just says, hey, good days, bad days, mountains, valleys, disappointments, successes. All I know how to do is keep walking after the one who created me. Right, and in 26 and a half years at City of Refuge, there have been days when it's been hard to be faithful. There have been days when the resources didn't seem to be as plenty as they needed to be. There have been days when somebody we've loved on and cared for died in our care. There have been times when they rebelled against us and stole stuff on their way out. There was a day when one of my staff came and got me and walked me out to my pickup truck. It's King Cab and laying in the back seat of my own truck dead was Jake, one of my friends from the streets that we had loved on for 13 years, and he was 70 years old, and he crawled up in the back seat of my truck one night and died overnight. There have been days when it's hard to be faithful. There have been days when you pray for deliverance and it doesn't happen. There have been days when you pray for success and it doesn't happen. But we just have to get up in the morning and understand that we have failed along the way as well, right? I have disappointed God and those around me. And just because somebody disappoints me in the journey that I happen to be leading at City of Refuge, that doesn't give me the right to walk away from the call that God has placed on my life. Just because my prayers aren't answered the way I want them to be answered, just because success does not come the way I have defined it, that does not give me the right to be unfaithful to the call. My dad passed away five years ago with cancer, diagnosed in February, died in May. We prayed for that the whole time, and somebody asked me near the end of dad's life, he said, if God doesn't answer your prayers, will it cause you to question whether or not God loves you? And I said, it's not going to change my mind about God. I've had enough unanswered prayers in my life that one more is not going to change me. Right? We've all had unanswered prayers in our life. That doesn't change who God is. He's perfect in all of His ways, whether I understand His ways or not. And so if we will be brave and be strong and be faithful, then it will give us the opportunity to be hopeful. 
Right? I believe if we are brave and strong and faithful, we can move to the place of being hopeful. What do you mean by that, Bruce? Well, I believe that God has all these abundant blessings that he wants to pour out in our life. I believe he's already chosen and designated and predestined incredible blessings for my life. But if I'm not brave and strong and faithful, then those blessings just shed on a, set on a heavenly shelf somewhere, and I don't have the opportunity to engage and embrace those. But if I'm brave and I'm strong and I'm faithful, God then dumps out these blessings. So I wake up every day right now being hopeful that today's a day a miracle takes place. That today is a day deliverance takes place. That today is a day a prayer I've been praying for years takes place. That today that guy I've been feeding on the corner for the past 12 years decided he doesn't want to be fed on the corner anymore. He wants to be fed at the table of the Lord God Almighty Himself and give his life to Jesus Christ. We've got to be hopeful. Listen, some of you have been hoping and praying and believing about something for a long, long, long time. Well, guess what? Today might be the day. Today might be the day when that thing is revealed in your life. If you have been brave and you have been strong and you have been faithful, then we can be hopeful, right? I'm hopeful today. I'm hopeful that some of you hear something that I have to say, maybe just one sentence that sticks with your heart and it changes the way you look at life a little bit. Maybe it changes the way you approach ministry. Ten years ago, I got a call from a buddy who said, hey, we've rescued a young lady that's been locked up on a military base in sex traffic for the last three years. Can you take her? And I said, well, we don't run an tra- anti-trafficking program. He said, we just need to hide her. They'll find her and they'll kill her. So we brought her, we hid her away, 40 days, she wouldn't come out of her room, then she asked to see me, her first words were, will you take me to the courthouse and wipe away the fact I ever existed? Change my name, my social security number, my birth certificate, they'll find me, they'll kill me. We had to get law enforcement involved, it was a crazy story, I went home and told Rhonda, I said, babe, we're not just going to pray about this and give somebody else money, we're starting our own program, right? We just start, so we started a safe house and a long-term program, then adult pro- with moms with kids and a juvenile program. In the last nine years, we've now housed over 900 women and children that have been sexually trafficked and exploited, showering them with the love of Jesus Christ, with the trauma-informed care that they need, Amen. We now have locations in Atlanta, in Bremen, Georgia, Tallapoosa, Georgia, Dallas, Texas. We're opening in Baltimore and in Charlotte, Nashville. God's blowing it up, exploding it. I started a ministry 15 months ago called Most Men Opposing Sex Trafficking. 99% of those who buy sex illegally are men. 95% of those who traffic women and children are men. Men are the issue, so we're challenging men to rise up and go to war against this issue. And so in, in prevention and interdiction and recovery, and one of the most fun things in my life, life right now. Because, and I believe it's because I was brave and, and strong and faithful for 26 years, 25 years. God opened the door for me to be hopeful that I can make a den and the trafficking thing is taking. It's horrible what's happening in our country. Sex trafficking is, a number, is the second fastest growing criminal enterprise in the world right now. $150 billion a year annual industry, $50 billion of that in the United States, $300 million of that in Atlanta. Right? It's horrible what's happening to our children. It's horrible what's happening to women that are being trafficked around the world, and especially in our country. It's unbelievable. But God said, rise up, son, and let's go do something about it. You were brave and strong and faithful over here, and you've been hopeful that there's some other level you can impact. Well, this is it. So come be brave and strong and faithful over here, and let's go see what I will do, God says, in that space. And so now that it's, I'm 63 years old. I've been in ministry my whole life. I've done a lot of other fun things along the way, but all of a sudden God introduces me to three dozen former special forces and special operators in the military that are retired but have skills now and they want to do something to impact the world they happen to love Jesus so we built our own rescue team now and if you'd been in my conference room 
If you've been in my conference room a couple of days ago, a couple of weeks ago, I mean, everything you can think of that goes with the rescue, right? I, I won't describe everything, but all the military gear, the bulletproof vests, the night goggles, everything's laid out in my room. We build a target package as we find out where the kids are. And in eight nights, we went and rescued 14 minors that were being sex trafficked in Atlanta, right? So, you know, I, and I don't mean this the way it sounds. I'll go hang out. You know, I travel and speak at some church just about every Sunday, and the pastor will be telling me about their trouble. You know, well, I got this elder that's mad about this, or this elder's mad about that. I let them talk a little bit, and I go, I kicked in the hotel door room night before last and, and got a John and rested him, and we took down a pimp, and we rescued a 12-year-old, and he looks at me and goes, shut up! <laughs> right? So now my wife says, you're crazy! She said, you're this age, you're more energized and excited you've ever been. Listen, I think as we stay brave and strong and faithful, God will unfold new and exciting and powerful things for us as we go. Right? And you have no idea the thrill and the energy and the satisfaction that comes. We brought a 12-year-old girl. She just turned 12 two weeks ago. We brought her into our campus on Friday and moved her into an unbelievably beautiful room with great staff and with care and with love and with gifts waiting on the bed for her. There's been sex traffic for the last three years. A 12-year-old girl now has an opportunity to see the love of God in a practical way that she can actually touch and feel and see and hear as the worship plays in our living environment all the time. Right? It's just unbelievable what God does. And so I, I just want you to think this morning, is there one thing you can do different, one thing you can say yes to, one gift you can give away that might lead to tens of thousands of people over the course of the next generation experiencing love and passion of Jesus Christ? Pastor and I have already talked. We're going to host a most event here next year. we got these one-night events where we bring men together, and it's a dramatic, in-your-face kind of encounter about sexuality and pornography and objectifying and, and sexualizing the people around us. And it's, it's this place. We were in Cincinnati two weeks ago, and at the end of that, they just had a portable baptismal pool that happened to have water in. I said, roll it over here. I said, you know, baptism is usually after salvation. I said, but if you just want to be washed free from your pornography, your adultery, your sex addiction, your lust, how about coming forward? 36 guys just walk forward, no change of clothes, no towels, walk forward and were washed in the water, right, to be cleansed of the things that had been holding them back from being what they're supposed to be in the kingdom of God. You know, and, and we got a lot of incredible big stories, but we'll wrap up with this. Uh, it's always just about the one life anyway, right? Every one life equals more and more as we move forward. So we met Vanessa Several years ago, about 16, 17 years ago, she had been homeless for 25, 26 years. When she was 12 years old, her mom traded her to the guy down the street for a fifth of liquor. He started raping her at 12. She got pregnant. Defects came in, took the child out of the home, took uh, Vanessa out of the home. She never saw her child again. She went to the streets. Heroin addict, cocaine, crack cocaine addict, uh, alcoholic in and out of jail. We were feeding the homeless one Sunday morning at the liquor store on the corner, and she looked at me and she said, can I go home with you? That's a pretty big question. But our answer is always yes. I go get in the car, right? So we take her home with me. Now, Vanessa and I, we, we got a lot of differences. We have different skin tone. We came from different backgrounds, our family, different educational pursuits in life. And one of the main things that's different about Vanessa and me is she dips snuff and never spits. It's just an amazing thing to see. I mean, she's got this big chaw in all the time, little drool running down right here, and never spits. I'm like, oh. So anyway, Vanessa started living on our campus. We sent her through a 12-month addiction recovery program, 12-month discipleship program. She started volunteering. And before we had our big commercial kitchen, she would fix hundreds of sack lunches every day. 
So she had everything laid out on this round white table. She had bread, meat, cheese, bread, uh, mustard, bread, plastic sandwich bag, brown bag, chips, fruit, water. And she'd make hundreds every day. She'd pick up bread, put meat and cheese on it, take the mustard, go down, up, down. Now, listen, if you help Vanessa with sandwiches, don't circle your mustard, don't square your mustard. Down, up, down. It's a rule, right? So she'd make the sandwiches, put them in a plastic bag, in a brown bag, fruit, chips, water, hundreds every day. The first time Vanessa see me every day, she'll look up from whatever she's doing. She goes, hey. I look back at her and I go, hey. And that's, hey, how you doing? Love you. Hope you have a good day. See you later. All in one word, right? And so I'm touring this group of donors in one day and we walk in the dining hall and we get a few feet in and Vanessa looks up and she goes, hey. And I look back and I said, hey. And they all went, huh. And so we walked a few more steps and Vanessa went, hey. Now we never had a double hey day before, right? So I stopped and I went, what? She goes, not hey to you, hey to them. And they're like, hey, crazy lady. And then Vanessa did this. She pointed at them. She said, y'all be quiet. And I'm like, Vanessa, these are donors. Got to raise money. She goes, y'all be quiet. And then she pointed at me. She said, see that man right there? They said, yes, ma'am. She said, man right there, I saved my life. And then she put meat and cheese and mustard on a piece of bread. And I finished my little tour and I called Rhonda and I go, we're good, babe. Vanessa doesn't understand regeneration. She doesn't know how to explain justification. She doesn't know what a spotless lamb giving his life for her means. All she knows is she was hungry and we gave her something to eat. She didn't have a coat and we gave her a coat. She didn't have a bed. We gave her somewhere to live. She didn't have a family. We became Diddy and Mama. That's all we know. Vanessa and I had this ongoing conversation for 15, 16 years. She sat on the second row right here every Sunday morning. I walk in the back of the sanctuary. No matter how many people's in the room, she'd yell, Diddy, come over here right now. I'd walk over there every Sunday. She'd go, Diddy, today I'm going to need a 20. And every Sunday I go, Vanessa, why do you need 20? And I know the answer, but every Sunday she'd go, well, Diddy, i got to buy some dip. And every Sunday I'd go, Vanessa, I want you to stop dipping. Your breath stinks. I don't know if you know that or not, but your breath stinks. You're going to get gum cancer, and it's a waste of money. And every Sunday, Vanessa look at me. She goes, let me tell you something right now, Diddy. I done quit shooting hair on. I done quit smoking crack cocaine. I done quit drinking Colt 45. I'm going to have me some dip. And every Sunday, I give her a 20. It was just the coolest relationship. It was just the coolest thing. One Sunday I walked in, she was having some health issues, incontinence issues. She's having to wear adult diapers. She called me up. She goes, Daddy, come over here. I went over. She said, Today I'm going to need 60. I said, $60? She goes, Daddy, I got to buy dip and diapers. And I said, I bet you I'm the only pastor in America that got that request this morning. So in my next book, I'm going to have a chapter dip and diapers, right? I didn't tell this part in the, previous, in the first service. Vanessa died last December. She'd been in the hospital for a long time, had a series of seizures. They called me up and said, hey, you've been listed as next of kin. I'm like, really? Yeah. So anyway, she gets to the point they call me. They say she's brain dead. We're moving her to hospice. Probably got a couple weeks. A couple weeks later, the phone rings. I answer it. It goes, this Pastor Bruce? They said, well, Vanessa woke up and wants to know where her daddy is. So I go to the hospice care center, and we hang out for a little while. I get ready to leave. She goes, I love you, Daddy. I go, love you too, darling. She goes, tell Mom I love her. I will. Tell all my sisters I love them. Yeah, man, I will. Tell Uncle Jeff I love him. Okay, okay. And I was getting ready to leave. She said, come here. One more thing, Daddy. I said, what? They won't let me have no dip in here. <laughs> Steve went to clean out our apartment. One of my staff brought back all our stuff from her apartment. We, we paid for her apartment, brought stuff back. He said, I think you should see this. He gave me this envelope. I said, well, what's this? He goes, well, it's a life insurance policy. 
He said two years ago when Vanessa started getting sick, she took out a $10,000 life insurance policy and named you as the beneficiary because she knows you're going to take care of her when she dies. And he said for the last two, two years, she's been paying $43 a month for a $10,000 life insurance policy. And I, I was moved nearly to tears. And then I realized every dollar Vanessa had, I gave her. So I've been paying $43 a month for my own life insurance policy. <laughs> But I went to this little run-down funeral home in the hood with about 15 people. And I spoke words over my darling Vanessa. And it just makes it worth it to know that she knew Jesus and that she was healed forever. All because we said yes 26 years ago to one little lady who walked down the aisle. And a couple of weeks later, I got a check from the insurance company for $9,500. They had taken $500 out for fees. and So the insurance company sent a check for $9,500 and had Vanessa Cowan's name in the memo line. And I called Rhonda, my wife, and I go, what am I supposed to do with this check? Right? I mean, what, what do you do with insurance money from somebody you loved and you cared for? You can't just go buy you something with that. Rhonda just had another profound statement. She said, you take that check and you go do for somebody else what you did for Vanessa. Thank you for joining us for this week's service. We pray that God has used this moment to greatly impact your life. We invite you to live fully alive in Christ with us here at Full Life Church. We'll see you next week.